0: Every one of us has seen a, a young couple go through the process of beginning to date and, and for the relationship to come up, become a little more serious. And, and then it moves into engagement. And usually those are exciting times. You're, you're celebrating with this couple after a little time of engagement. Here comes the big day, and it's a great time of, of celebration. You're excited for this couple. Um, a few years, and kids show up and everything it's just it's it's a blessing to to see but but then after a little while this marriage begins to face the trials that life brings and under the weight of of all that was going on uh this husband has begun to uh be unfaithful to his wife he's uh begun to commit adultery with a lady that that he worked with now the wife has has been faithful and yet this husband that we were also excited about the day of the wedding and throughout the relationship, has walked away, has, has left her alone. And when we hear a story like that, we feel that. We, we just, there's something in us that says, that's not okay, because when he stood there, he said, till death do us part. And, and yet he's, he's, he's walking away from this commitment with another woman. And the reason we feel that is because we know that marriage is meant to be different than other relationships, A wife is meant to be your one and only, or a husband is meant to be a wife's one and only. It's a unique relationship. Well, similarly, our relationship with God is meant to be a unique relationship in an even greater way. God is meant to be our one and our only. So do you live in such a way that it is clear that you submit to God as your one and only? as the one you treasure above all others, above all else? Or is your relationship with God more like the marriage that I just described? These are questions that we'll think together about as we explore Isaiah 46 this morning. We are continuing a brief series called Hope Rises, and we're looking at the book of Isaiah for uh, kind of a big picture perspective of, of what the book is about. And I hope these next... Uh, a few weeks together, that that you'll come away with an understanding of the major themes of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 1-1 claims that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is the author of the book. Now, the authorship of Isaiah has been disputed since the times of the Enlightenment. One of the primary reasons, as we talked about last week, that people have disputed the authorship of Isaiah and said, well, there has to be someone else who's written part of Isaiah or perhaps a lot of other people, is because he prophesies so specifically about things that are going to happen in the future long before his time. And, and so people have argued, well, there's no way that could, that could really be Isaiah because he couldn't have known those things. But if we believe in a God who's supernaturally powerful and able to speak through a prophet, then we have no trouble believing that the book of Isaiah was indeed written by Isaiah a lot of other good reasons to, to hold to that we talked about last week uh, we won't review them this morning and last week we took a really big chunk of Isaiah and we talked about chapters 1 through chapters 39 and we noted that the major overarching theme of these chapters is God's judgment that he will not tolerate sin among his people that he will judge that sin now throughout those chapters we see glimpses of hope and we see God's mercy at work Now, Isaiah began prophesying around 740 B.C., and we know that he was prophesying as late as 701 B.C., and perhaps even later. So we're talking about 40 years or more of of ministry as a prophet. Now, this morning, we're going to survey briefly chapters 40 through 48, and these are prophecies that are made to the exilic community. That is to say, uh, these are prophecies that were made to Jews who were taking uh, taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, if you'll remember, last week we talked about chapter 39, and, and the first section of Isaiah sort of wraps up with a transition. Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, becomes very sick. He is near death, and he prays to God for God's help. And, and so God uh, gives Hezekiah more years. He says, Yeah, you can live more years. Well, the king of Babylon sent an envoy from Babylon with a gift to. King Hezekiah, again, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, to, to celebrate the fact that he has recovered. And King Hezekiah takes all of uh, the folks that, that came in this envoy and shows them all the treasures uh, of Israel. In a sense, there's probably an element of pride here. Look at all that we have. And then also there maybe was an attempt to begin to build an alliance with Babylon against the Assyrians. Well, the prophet Isaiah went to King Hezekiah and he said, you know what, all these treasures that you Uh, showed the envoy from Babylon all of those treasures, actually, they're going to end up in Babylon because Babylon's going to come and they're going to take you away. And what Isaiah was prophesying was he was prophesying the fact that Jerusalem was going to fall to Babylon. In 586, in fact, this happened. In 586... The Babylonians came and they conquered Jerusalem. They conquered Judah. They carried off most of the people into captivity in Babylon, nearly 900 miles from Jerusalem. So imagine the distance from here to Kansas City. Uh, The distance from Jerusalem to Babylon is a little greater, except they didn't travel by planes or by cars. So this is a long ways from home. Now in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, Isaiah is prophesying to these future exiles who were living in Babylonian captivity. We're gonna get an overview of these chapters together, then we'll spend some time focusing in on Isaiah 46. As we survey these nine chapters, we'll see that God is the one and only true God. That God is the one and only true God. We'll see his greatness and and his glory. So let's take a quick tour. In chapter 40, the focus is, is on the fact that God will restore his people. Now remember, they're in exile, they're troubled, they're not in their homeland, they feel estranged from God, but he says in chapter 40 that he will restore. In chapter 41, God explains that he sovereignly guides the events of history and that he will rescue his people. In chapter 42, he says that he will bring a righteous servant, and this is a prophecy of the Messiah, the fact that Jesus would one day come and and, and rescue God's people. In chapter 43, again, God reiterates this idea that he will redeem and that he'll bring his people back to their homeland. In chapter 44, we see an emphasis on on the fact that God is the one true God. In chapter 45, the prophet Isaiah reminds us that God will will use Cyrus, uh, the the king of the Persians, to, to deliver his people from Babylonian captivity. Now, this event would occur nearly two hundred years after what after the time that Isaiah is prophesying. So he's looking well into the future, and he says that Cyrus will come, and he will be a deliverer for you. That is to say, he Cyrus the uh, the Persian king would would mount an attack against Babylon. They would be successful. They would overtake Babylon, and the Medes or the Persians would allow the Israelites to return to their homelands. In chapters forty six through forty seven, we saw this. Reckoning, Babylon would face the judgment of God. They had attacked God's people. They had lived in sinfulness and idolatry. They would face his judgment. Chapter 48, God calls his people to walk in faithfulness. So these chapters, this big picture view of these chapters, remind us of God's greatness. He is the one God. There is no other. He reigns over all things, and he cares for, and he comforts his people. He hasn't abandoned his people. Now this morning, again, we'll focus on Isaiah 46 as sort of representative of these chapters. Let's look together at Isaiah 46. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. Who have been born by me from before your birth? Carried from the womb? Even to your old age I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will say, To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mine, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel "'Shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, "'calling a bird of prey from the east, "'the man of my counsel from a far country. "'I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. "'I have purposed, and I will do it. "'Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, "'you who are far from righteousness. "'I bring near my righteousness. "'It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. "'I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel, my glory.'" Our text gives us five truths about God as the one true God. First, the false gods must be carried. The false gods must be carried. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Bel and Nebo are mentioned specifically. Bel is another name for a God we're familiar with throughout the Old Testament, also known as Baal. Now, Nebo is Baal's son, and these are the primary or the chief gods of the Babylonians. And here in verses 1 and 2, again, Isaiah is looking forward and he's looking to a time when Babylon is under great distress. There's an evacuation happening because, because of the, the pressure that's coming against them. And where are Babylon's chief gods? Are they rescuing the people? What Isaiah says here is, No, your chief gods, your main gods. Well, they're bowing down, they're in submission. They, they, they stoop down. In fact, he basically says they're collapsing. They're, they're melting away. In verse 1, he says, you carry these gods. In other words, the people are going to be evacuating. They're, they're trying to get to safety. And he says, you're having to load up your gods and put them on the, the, the beasts or the animals that are carrying your luggage, that are carrying your, your all that you own. You're loading up your gods, and those animals are already weary, and now you've wearied them with your false gods with your idols. He says in verse 2, they can't save. They can't rescue. Instead, they just weigh you down. They're a burden to you. Do you remember as a kid perhaps playing with with action figures? Some of you maybe had a Superman or maybe some of you have an Avenger or something like that and you play with these little guys, these little action figures. You can take Superman and you can make him fly around. But if you set Superman down and you hope he'll fly, it's just not going to happen. Not unless you pick him up and you make him fly. If there's some bad guys and you want him to stop the bad guys, well, that's not going to happen unless you take him and you knock the bad guys down. And that's what Isaiah is saying to his people. Don't you see that those are false gods? They can't do anything. They can't save. Instead, they are a burden to you. They must be carried. That's what Isaiah says. So we have a tendency to put our faith in, in, in all sorts of things, things that they can't rescue, just like the people did then. Now, we don't create, we don't take money or gold or something and go to a, a goldsmith and say, hey, build me an idol to set on my shelf. We don't do that, obviously. But we do it in different ways. We, we take things that, That we love and we make them gods in our lives. We take hobbies and we we set them up in our lives and we say, this is what I'm gonna bow down to. Sometimes we even take people and we say, this is what I'm gonna make my life about. I'm gonna, this person, I'm gonna make them the the center of my life. Or we take jobs or aspirations, all of these sorts of things and, and we try to make them our savior. We try to make them the place where we find life and meaning and purpose. And Isaiah is saying to the people, they can't do anything like the Superman figurine. They can't rescue. that They can't save. It's just not going to happen. And so our modern day idols look much different than the idols of ancient times. And yet they serve the same purpose. They serve as a way to sort of give us a false comfort, a false sort of meaning in life. But it's not real. It's not something that can save so we've seen that the false gods are carried around on, burst, uh, on beasts of, of burden. Second, God is the God who carries his people. He is the God who carries his people. Look in verse 3. Isaiah, uh, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says, Listen to me. Don't you remember? He's speaking to his people. And he says, Don't you know that, that I have carried you since you were born? since the time that you were in the womb, I was looking after you. And if you think back to, to, to God's work and the lives of his people, remember the call of Abraham and how he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and by you all nations will be blessed. And, and so Abraham had a family and God was blessing Abraham's family, even in the midst of their sin and their, their foibles, God was at work. And, and then they eventually went to Egypt by God's providence to escape famine. And then in Egypt, eventually they became enslaved and then God rescued them mightily from the nation of Egypt. And all along the way, God had taken care of his children. And he says to them, don't you know I've carried you? I've, I've borne you from the time of your birth, even while you were in the womb. In verse 4, he says, I continue to carry you even into your old age. Even as your hair turns gray, I am there with you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. So the false gods, they had to be carried around. But the one true God, He's carrying His people. He's carrying His people. In His love for them and in His commitment to them, He's holding them. Have you seen a son or a daughter caring for an aged parent who's who's nearing the end of life? That son or that daughter is right by that bedside. And if that mom or that dad needs a sip of water, oh, they're attentive. There are ten of a few chunks of ice. Yes, here. What, what do you need? Can, can I get it for you? Mama, I love you. Daddy, I, I love you. I'm right here, holding, holding the hand of their loved one, and holding the hand of their loved one as their loved one passes into eternity. It's a picture of devotion and love. And that's what God says He is for His people. I am carrying you from the time of your birth to the time of your old age. I am with you. I will not let you down. I will not let you go. What a beautiful picture of God's care and love we see here in Isaiah. So we've seen that God is the God who carries His people third. The false gods are nothing but created objects that can't act. They're nothing but Created objects that cannot act. Look in verse 5. To whom will you liken me, God asks. Who will you compare me? In many ways, this word is is used sometimes to speak of the relationship or the appearance, uh, similarity between a parent and a child. God says, who do I resemble? Who is like me? And the answer is obvious. There's no one who's like God. There's no one like him. That's the answer to the question. He is above all. He is a completely different category. There's no one else in his category. He is the one and only. In verse 6, he says, so you take your gold and, and, and you take it out of your purse or you take your silver and you hire a goldsmith. And this goldsmith makes you a god fashions your God according to your desires, according to your tastes, and then after you get your God, you fall down and you begin to worship it. Do you see that, that God is saying to his people, what on earth are you doing? How ridiculous is this? How insane is this? He says, and then after worshiping it, they lift it up onto their shoulder to carry it, to transport it. Do you see the irony in what God is saying here? And then they take it off their shoulder and they set it in its place and it just just stands there. It just stands there. It can't move. And then this person cries out to it, save me, help me. But there is no answer. There is no answer. And Isaiah wants, I mean, Isaiah God, through the prophet Isaiah, wants his people to see and understand that it is pointless to make an idol. It is pointless to chase after these false gods. Let's suppose you you wanted to be a football star, and so you went out and you bought a football, and you thought, I got a football, I know this is going to make me a star, I bought a football. Now that's crazy, thinking. we recognize that because a football isn't going to make you a football star. If you're going to be a football star, you definitely need a football. But a football isn't going to make you a football star. And here, God is saying to his people, you can get your idol, and you can set it up, and you can devote your life to it, but it will never, ever save you. It will never, ever be what you hope it will be. You can can bow down to it, you can worship, you can devote your time and your life and your energy to it, but it will never save. It will never satisfy. It will leave you wanting, yes, longing. Now for a period it may seem good, but in the final analysis when the heat is turned up, it will not save. It cannot, for it's nothing but an object, an object that cannot act Fourth, God is the God who acts. He's the God who acts. Look in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. God says, don't forget how I've worked in the past. Recognize I am the only God. I am the only only true God. There's none other. Now there are all sorts of gods. In this time period there were all sorts of gods. In our time period there are all sorts of gods. Gods of world religions and then things we've created and made into gods in our own lives. And God says unequivocally none of these, none of these compares to me. I am the one and only true God. He says in verse 10. I declare the end from the beginning. That is, I know all things, and I am in control. He says, my counsel shall stand. What I decide to accomplish, it'll happen. I will do as I please. In other words, God is the God who acts. He doesn't have to check with someone and get permission, doesn't have to get clearance or a signature from his superiors. If God wants to act, the scriptures say he acts. Now the false gods, they couldn't act they had to be acted upon but not God no God is able to do as he pleases and he says in verse 11 that he would call a bird of prey from the east and again this is a reference to Cyrus he says I am going to rescue I'm going to use I'm going to use an unlikely figure uh, a foreign king to come and to rescue you I will accomplish it I will do as I please so we've seen that God is the God who acts fifth He is the God who saves. He is the God who saves. In verse 12, God says, listen to me. In other words, hear what I'm saying. Get this. You're you're stubborn. He's saying to his people, you have such stubborn hearts. You're so strong-headed. You want to go your own way. You want to do your own thing. But stop for a minute and hear me. Open your ears. He says, You're far from righteousness. You're going your own way. You're living life how you want to live. But I'm calling you to make a change. He says, I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. So God is saying, I am coming near to you with my holiness, with my righteousness. It's not far. Here's God pleading with his people, pleading with them to seek him to turn from sin and to to make him their one and only true God. He says, I put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So he says, I'm going to accomplish my purpose through my people for my glory. It's a picture of a God who loves, a God who isn't aloof, but a God who's near, a God who comes to save his people. Let's think together about how these truths should affect our lives. First, you need to really consider if you are submitting to God as the one true God. You need to really consider if you're submitting to God as the one true God, do you love him more than anyone else? Do do you love him more than anything else? Is is he the the center of your life? Would it be true if, if, if someone was looking down with a bird's eye view of your life that it's clear that your life is centered around him? You see, if He's the one true God, if if He really is the the one true God, then surely you're going to seek to build your life around Him and His purposes for you. To do anything else would be absurd. It would be foolishness. So seek to, to follow Him. Seek to know Him more deeply. Seek to draw close to Him. Seek to walk in obedience, not in your own strength, but by the power of His grace. Asking you, asking Him to change your heart and to change your affections, to give you a deeper love for Him. Seek to get to know Him more. How much time do you give to your relationship with the Lord, to developing it, to to, to growing deeper in, in your commitment and your love for Him? Well, if He's the one true God, we probably need to make some changes in the way we use our time. Let's suppose that you had a good friend who, who had connections and Maybe President Bush, number 43, got a ranch in Crawford, but he's going to come up to Uvalde, going to do a little hunting down here, maybe. And you've got connections, and you're going to be host, your friend, pardon me, is going to be hosting him for dinner. And your friend says to you, hey, do you want to come over? And you think, hey, this is a chance to meet a former president of the United States sit down and have dinner. This is, this is crazy. I can't imagine an opportunity like that. Or maybe you're not really into the politicians, and so uh, maybe it's Manu Ginobili or Kawi Leonard or, or something like that that your friend is inviting you to, to eat with. And you think to yourself, you know what, I'm clearing my schedule. I'm going to be there. I, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to get to meet this, this former president or this Spurs superstar, and I'm going to be there. This person who's so important. But do we think about God like that? Do we say, oh, I've got an opportunity to open his word and to meet with the God of the universe, the one and only true God? Or are we, hum? Oh, oh, I guess I'll read the Bible. Do you see, brothers and sisters, if we really believe he's the one true God, That ought to pull our hearts. It ought to give us a longing to know Him. Do you have that kind of desire to know Him, to be close to Him, to meet with Him? He's the one true God, greater than any politician, greater than any superstar or sports star. The one true God of the universe invites you into fellowship with Him, to be near Him. What an amazing reality! So are you submitting to God as the one true God? Number two, are you living as if God is just another God among your idols? Are you living as if God is just another God among your idols? An idol is anything that you love more than you love God. It could be your reputation. I want people to think this about me or that about me. And that's sort of my, that's what I really live my life for. Or it could be the stuff that you own. Man, I got to get this and that and have this and that. And man, I just love all of this stuff. Getting more can become an idol to us. It's not wrong to have something, but it's wrong when we begin to love that something more than we love God. It could be hobbies. A lot of the times, hobbies that are good and, and are a blessing to us we can begin to turn them into an idol. They begin to to, to be what we live for. So do you really, really love someone or something more than you love him? A good way to think about this is, what do you talk about? What do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you spend your time on? What do you spend your money on? Answers to these questions can help us identify the hidden idols of our heart, the things in our heart that compete for that compete in our love for God. You see, God will not be just another God among our idols. He would not be that in the lives of His people, and He will not be that in your life. He will not be that in any of our lives. He will not tolerate idolatry. Are you letting other things and other pursuits become the passion of your heart? God will have none of that. Number three. You need to ask yourself if you really know the one true God. You need to ask yourself if you really know the one true God. You see, it's very possible to know facts about God but not know God. It's possible to believe that he exists but not know him. It's possible to have gone through a lot of religious experiences and still not be a child of God. All of those things are very possible. So the question on the table is this, do you really know him? Has there been a time in your life where you've turned from your sin and where you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus, a turning point, a time when you were born again? Has that happened? You know, when I think about space, I I know some facts about space. I, I figure many of you do as well, but I've never traveled into space. So I can say I know about space, but I can't say I know space in the truest sense. I've never been there. I've read about it. I've never been there. You see, a lot of us know facts about God, but we've never been there. We've never really come to know him personally. We've never turned from our sins and cried out to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm tired of going my own way and I'm putting my life in your hands. I'm yours now. And the Bible says that when we call out to God like that, that he saves us. And the good news is he'll never, ever let us go. What, what an incredible truth. We can know the God of the universe and have a relationship with him for all eternity. Isn't that something to be thankful for? Isn't that something to be grateful for? So consider if you really know God personally. Number four, God sovereignly rules over all things. He sovereignly rules over all things. What we see in Isaiah is that life is not out of control. That God even uses our wicked choices and and our sinful decisions. He even uses those things to accomplish His purposes. Imagine this. He would use a wicked nation like Babylon to to bring discipline into the lives of His children. And He would use a, a nation like Persia to let His children be free. So if you belong to God, He is at work in your life. And He will not waste the hard times, he he won't waste them. He won't waste the mistakes that you've made. If you belong to him, he'll even work in the midst of your own sinfulness, in the places where we've flat fumbled the ball. God will will still work. God God will still be with us. You see, if you belong to him, he is at work in your life. Judah had a dark past. That's why they were in Babylon because they had rebelled against God, and so they were in Babylon. A nearly a 1,000 miles from home. You don't see God walking away. No, they're his people. He stays with them. So, so what is your past, hold? Are there things in your past that you regret, that you wish, oh, if I could just turn back the clock, if I could just, if I could just go back? Brothers and sisters, if you belong to God, you don't have to live there. God redeems our past. God even uses our sinful choices to, to shape us. We don't have to live in that kind of trap in prison. Oh, is that good news? Oh, such good news. There's no doubt if we've made sinful choices in the past, we have to face the consequences. That's reality. Judah had to face the consequences of her sinfulness. But make no mistake, God had not abandoned his people. And if you belong to him, he has not abandoned you even if you've dreadfully fumbled the ball, and all of us have at one point or another. how God rules over all things, providing special care for his children. Back in the mid-20th century, the Russians had sent the first people into space, the first human space flight. These Russian cosmonauts made their first journey into space and it's reported that these cosmonauts said this, we have been in the air, we have been around the earth, and we did not see God. Well, the following Sunday after that report came out, W.A. Criswell, the pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas, said, oh, if those cosmonauts had stepped out of their spacesuit, surely they would have seen the very face of God. Now see, God is the one true God. And this truth friends, is unavoidable. He's the one true God. We can't get away from that. He is a great and mighty God. He exercises His sovereignty and rule. He shows compassion and love to His people. He is the one and only true God. Are you living in a way that reveals that you believe that? That, that, that reveals that this is true in your life? Are you submitting your life to Him in, in a manner that would reveal that you know He's the one true God? What changes do you need to make to live in submission to him? Now, you can't make those changes in your own strength, but if you draw close to him, he'll help you to change. He'll help you. He'll begin to shape you. And as you read the word and pray, and as you seek fellowship and help from other brothers and sisters in Christ, God will use those means to help you change. But what change is it that you need to make? What area of your life are you saying to God, I'll do what I please. You can get out of my life. I, this area of my life, it's mine, God. You leave it alone. Keep your hands off of it. I'll live like I want to live. Friends, we can't do that. What is it that God is calling you to change? How can you draw close to him in love and in submission to him? In a crowd of this size, there's no doubt there are people here who do not have a relationship with Jesus, who who don't have a personal relationship with him. Today, in in the word, we've seen God's offer of salvation. And what we know from scripture is that Jesus died. He died in our place. We we talked about chapter 42 of Isaiah, and that pointed to the fact that God would send his Messiah. You see, God did send his Messiah. He, He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to come And rescue us. Jesus of the perfect life here on earth. He was nailed to the cross. He was buried. And he was raised from the dead. And because of what Jesus did. Sinners. People who are guilty like you and me. Can have our sins forgiven. We can know God. And have a relationship with the God of the universe. The God who is holy. And so. I ask you today. Has there ever been that turning point in your life. Where you have said to the Lord. I've been doing things my own way. But God, I am finished. God, I'm bowing down. You're the one true God. I'm putting my life in your hands. Has that happened in your life? If it hasn't, I want you to know that eternity is in the balance. Today, you could be saved. You could know the one true God for all eternity. Join me in prayer.